This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an awesome online learning community filled with thousands of creative video classes taught by experts and professionals. With topics ranging from how to start a side hustle, meditation, the stock market, graphic design, cooking, coding, and everything in between. Learn that skill you were always curious about or kickstart that passion project you've always wanted to. Sign up using our special Suck In Between link in the episode notes or our Insta bio for a free 30-day trial. Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandon. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we are so excited to be joined by the world-renowned mythologist, author, speaker and illustrator, Devdutt Patanaik, to learn more about South Asian mythology. Having more than 50 publications and done a countless number of talks and lectures on the topic, we are so honoured to have some of Devdutt's time. He is absolutely incredible and he was a perfect guest for an episode like this. This podcast is the first of a two-part series that we'll be releasing. In this part one episode, Devdutt explains the different types of mythologies that exist in the world, their similarities and differences, the role mythology has played throughout history, and how it's been impacted by colonialism. And in the second part of the series, which we'll be releasing next Monday, we dive into South Asian mythology specifically. Devdutt answers questions like, why do we have so many gods? The significance of epics like the Mahabharata and Ramayana, how concepts like karma and dharma are often misunderstood, as well as plenty more, so stay tuned for that. We can't recommend Devdutt's work enough. He makes learning about these things really accessible to people like us. So keep an eye out on our Instagram and in the episode notes where we'll be sharing some of our favourite books and talks of his. And on a side note, we are sending all our love to everyone in lockdown here in Australia. Hit us up on Instagram if we can be of any support in any way. Most definitely. Now on to today's episode. Devdutt, thank you so much for joining us today. There's a creative who I really admire who actually introduced me to your work and I fell in love straight away because you challenged how I had always looked at Hinduism and mythology and made me think differently about it. And the person who taught me all of these things growing up was my amama or my grandma. Uh, So now whenever I watch one of your videos or read some of your work, um, I always share it with her and we get to have a kind of deeper conversation, you know, 15, 20 years since she was originally teaching me about these things. So, you know, as much as Rami and I are really excited to chat with you, I think my alma mater is even more excited to, <laughs> to hear what you have to say. Amazing. And I'm super excited as well because people like Sandin and I and, and speaking with a lot of our friends and people our age being brought up in the West, we're almost taught Hindu religion in like a very rigid way. Um, and it's not until we've hit adulthood that we've started exploring these topics ourselves and understanding the deeper meanings behind it. Um, So yeah, we really have a lot to learn when it comes to this topic and we're really grateful to have your time. It's so cool to be on a call with you because we've watched so many of your videos. (laughs) So this is unreal. Um, So just to clarify and I guess set the scene of the podcast today, could you tell us a little bit about the difference between mythology, spirituality, history, and religion, and where they all overlap? 
Yes. So these words really, um, this kind of division appears only in the 19th century. We must clarify that. Before mm. the 19th century, so in the 17th century, 16th century, nobody really differentiated between these words. They were used very mythology and religion and history all meant the same things. So first, let's understand the easiest one, history. History is the study of the past based on evidence. Mm. Evidence is very important when you're talking history. Mythology, however, it's a subjective truth of a people. So the word is subjective over here, communicated through stories, symbols and rituals. So let's say you are in Africa and you meet a people from Africa and they'll say, we believe we descended from the sun. Now, that's their subjective truth, which is communicated to them through a story. Maybe there's a ritual, there's a festival. In Australia, there are people who, the Aborigines who talk of the dream time. Um, so you have these different stories. Now, the point is to understand that they are subjective stories which bind and create the community, but they are subjective. And they communicate through stories, symbols and rituals. I don't care for evidence here. It doesn't matter. In history, evidence matters a lot. And really you're talking about the past and whatever information you have about the past. And therefore that's the world of history. Now, many communities in the world don't have evidence because they've been around for such a time. They don't have written evidence. They don't, they didn't create monuments. It doesn't mean they didn't have a history. It means they don't, you don't have evidence of the past. So the only thing you have to rely on is the memories that they carry with them, the stories they carry with them, which is not based in time. Or at least the notion of time is very different in those stories. So we have to separate these two things, not privilege one over the other, the two different bodies of knowledge. As far as spirituality and religion is concerned, again, religion is an easy word. In the 19th century, it referred to monotheistic faiths. So all the faiths which were not monotheistic were called, they're not religions, they're pagans, they're primitive, they're savages. These words, we don't use them today in the 21st century, but they were very popular in the 19th century where they privileged the idea of monotheism, one God with a very clear code of conduct, which everybody has to follow. So Judaism fits into this, Christianity fits into this, Islam fits into it. But the Chinese faiths don't fit into it. The Japanese don't fit into it. Indians didn't fit into it. Africans didn't fit into it. So the whole colonial world, the colonized world did not fit into this way of thinking, which came from Europe. And spirituality is something that, uh, you know, in the 19th, again, 19th century, spirituality really meant psychology. So psychology as a subject did not exist in many parts of the world. They only spoke of the body and they didn't really speak of the mind, the understanding of the mind. So spirituality is in a form of a deep psychology, often communicated through story symbols and rituals. So it's like a point where psychology meets mythology. But it's personal. So spirituality usually tends to be personal, while religious tends to be social, a group of people. You never use a spiritual people. You, it's always a religious people because they form a group. And spirituality is a personal journey that we go on. Really deep psychology. I don't differentiate anymore between the two. Yeah. That's such a great explanation. And I remember there's a joke you made in one of your talks where you say, you know, religion is what your parents teach you and spirituality is what you figure out yourself. Mm. And I feel like that's the stage where we're at, where we're opening our eyes to explore, you know, what makes sense to us personally and understand the deeper meanings behind things that were taught kind of out of routine or ritual growing up. 
So the rituals and routines is how really ideas are communicated over generations. They cannot be rationalized. With you know, people nowadays we try to rationalize and call it rational or scientific, but really, uh, you know, wearing a garland now you can't really make sense of it. Or a, just look at a birthday ritual. Uh, you get a cake, and then you have candles on top of it. These things don't make sense. Standing up during the national anthem. Rituals are choreographed performances that we do. Mm. It's just uh, you know, some sometimes everything doesn't have to be rational in the world. That's an important point to <laughs> Yeah, I think that's so interesting because you often associate rituals to, you know, religious aspects of life, but you're so right. There are so many rituals from a day-to-day sense, like standing up for the national anthem that is just passed on and we don't know maybe where it started, but you're you're so right in this day and age, we're so fixated on evidence and everything <laughs> being fact based and mm. you know maybe like even Sandin and I could even fall into that because of just the way we're taught things growing up too um do you think it's possible to not be religious or not to identify with a particular religion but still take away from the mythology or still be a spiritual person see in your personal understanding we will learn from all the things we're exposed to we live in very different times. In earlier times, you would perhaps belong to a tribe and that's the only thing you heard. You didn't hear anything else for the rest of your life. You lived in a small village, in a forest, and you had no exposure. We live in a world with extreme exposure. Mm. We have lots of ideas coming at us from different sources, different spaces. So it's human to pick and choose. It's not, it's not unique to you or me. When we are offered so many choices of information, we will pick and choose, but I, I usually use a very simple definition when I'm dealing with a lot of information. I say fact is everybody's truth. When you know, if something that is everybody's truth, which is usually based on mathematics, science, evidence, but there's a lot of the world which is nobody's truth. It's just fiction floating around, no evidence at all. And then there is somebody's truth. Some people believe in it. And I think that in a world where we are talking about diversity and inclusion, this idea of somebody's truth is a very powerful idea. It's true for that person. It's not true for me, but it's true for him. And I think that enables us to have decent human conversations. Yeah, you're so right. And I think, you know, that that probably will solve half the problems in today's world if you just accept that everyone just has different views and we can just sort of agree on the fact that we all disagree with certain things and agree on the fact that we have different views when it comes to everything in life because that's just what makes us human. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. And I guess to take a few steps back, how did you, you know, personally, how did you enter the world of mythology? Um, What kind of sparked that interest and fascination for you? So this was something much of a hobby. I used to spend time, um, you know, I didn't even realize I had this, going on. Uh, As a child, when I'd go to a bookshop, I'd pick up books on mythology. At that time, I used the word mythology, religion. They were all these fantasy, this vague world which I was interested in. And it emerged very organically. Like uh, I was in medical college and then I wanted to make some money in my free time and I would write articles for my... I now realize that even in my college magazine, I used to write articles and they were all mythological articles or fantasy-based articles. I didn't even realize I was doing this very casually. Um, so it was a very casual thing. My go-to space, you know, when you are free and you want to do your own stuff, 
it was my hobby so that's the easiest word i can give you is it's my hobby and it really became serious much later in life much much later in life um uh, you know uh, i think I, i was bored and somebody like asked me to write some articles for them and then somebody said you know somebody's looking for someone to write a book on shiva can you do it and i said yes so i didn't go around looking for a book publisher the book publisher literally came to me and i said okay i'll do it and i did it and i sent him the table of content and everything and he said oh my god you did it in one day and i didn't even realize it at that time that i was studying things and because of my science background i had a way of classifying things organizing things which normally people don't do normally when you read books um, especially in hinduism they are all scattered all over the place it's not put in a systematic and organized there are too many academic books which are so heavy that nobody wants to read them so you have these so i think it just happened organically and then one thing led to another opportunities just came my way uh, and then you know one day i was in a conversation with friends dealing with office issues and politics and office mm. and i was giving the mythological examples and one of my friends said hey will you write this in the column and i said okay i'll write it in the column and that became a big hit that column and that led to me writing on business and that led me to someone else saying that will you do this full time and be part of our think tank because we think uh, you know india is changing and we feel that people don't understand india and your uh, contribution will be great and so you know it's just organic it was just a hobby which became a full time vocation very very like no plans it just happened yeah just yeah. very organically yeah and i know you mentioned that having that science background kind of helped you organize your thoughts and everything did you ever i guess having that science background did the science and the mythology ever clash in your own mind or did it just help you make sense of of both or did you just separate both things in your head you see this division between science and religion is something that you see only in america and european countries because they are trained in monotheism mm. and monotheism is there's only one truth and there's an obsession with this idea of one truth which means it has to be this or that it's a binary so either it has to be the bible or it has to be a scientific paper it's either or everything is either or and in india you don't think like that because you live in a world with so much of diversity that you're constantly exposed to multiple ways of looking at things multiple ways of thinking people who don't agree with each other you know different gods you worship different ways of eating different ways of dressing different uh, weather systems there is nothing standardized that calendars are not standardized the way you look at time is not standardized you know the traditional calendars have different months and the same festival is celebrated by different people on different days so you don't bother so much with this there's one truth mm. so this is a very important benefit that you get when you're raised in an indian ecosystem is you just are diversity is not to be you don't need a training program for diversity it's just there you're born in diversity mm. and therefore for me science was one way of looking at the world religion was another way of looking at the world and science taught you certain things which religion couldn't teach you mm-hmm. and religion taught you certain things that science couldn't teach you and it was just taken casually so i'm only asked these questions in a european or an american or a western ecosystem because i always say that you know it comes from there can be one god one truth one way of life and i'm like no but you can have many gods and you can have many truths and you can have many ways of life because i come from a world with many ways of life many gods many truths there is no one world world will come to an end on one day no there are many things that will happen simultaneously this 
casualness with truth is something that is in i think the greatest gift that india brings to the table saying that there is no one truth there cannot be one truth so what is called diversity and inclusion today is something that you're born with and it's just there it's so science i know will never explain um, you know all the problems of life mm. it's it's a measurement based system and there are many things that are not measurement based in fact indian philosophy separates the measurable and the non measurable it very clearly says this is sakar sagun therefore measurable and this is and really what they use is i feel they talk about psychology and the mind which we call spirituality but they say you can't measure emotions you can't even today scientists can't measure emotions they can measure molecules that cause dopamine surge they can measure serotonin they can't measure why you feel grateful why do you feel happy why do you feel generous um why do you feel low i mean it's not always a chemical imbalance it's not otherwise that's what leads to drug addiction because you start creating drugs for everything and uh, so that's the thing science again that's the tragedy of science, uh, the west right they moved from many gods to one god to no god and this kind of a linear trajectory in the 19th century if you existed you have to believe in monotheism and then 20th century you have to supposed to be atheist and i'm like why why is this one 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 all the time mm. uh, you know and that is the problem in india i never faced this issue at all it was never there even now it's not there it's like why are you even the asking why is this question being asked mm. yeah i feel like i mean personally i definitely have fallen into the trap before of uh sometimes thinking that there was only one way of looking at certain things right um and actually the the first video i saw of yours was a ted talk from a few years ago which i'd really recommend everyone go and check out um we can put the link to that in the episode notes yes but one of the things you talk about in that is how you applied concepts from um indian mythology to organizational psychology mm. and to the business world which was kind of like a light bulb moment for me to think about how the lessons from these stories can be applied to aspects of life that I hadn't thought about. Um so I guess to that what we really wanted to do with you in this episode is uh dive into the things that might be underappreciated or uh, misunderstood when it comes to South Asian mythology mm-hmm. but before that um uh, to give some more broader context on the significance of mythology as a whole Could you speak a little to the different types of mythologies that exist? So, um there are many ways of classifying mythology. Um I mean I use a practical tool. I'm not an academician. I really academician just takes it to another level which is doesn't help anyone. But at a very practical level, I see the South Asia as one zone of mythology. So you can call it the Indic mythologies. Very crude word. but use them only as functional placeholders don't get you know people get bogged down by these labels but broadly south asia is a place where the idea of rebirth emerged so the idea of rebirth mythologies or indian mythologies are rebirth mythologies that's one major zone to the east of it is china and japan and that's another major zone of mythologies there is another zone of mythology to the west of it which is highly monotheistic which is uh the european and what is called the western world it's a combination of greek ideas and biblical ideas so these are the three major zones but they sit on a very larger ecosystem of what i call for want of a better word tribal mythologies so every tribe in this world from africa to australia to canada to india 
there are each tribe has its own way of looking at the world which is limited to its ecosystem and what they experienced and they have been passing it to them but the problem is you can't extrapolate it to larger spaces because of the limited number of people we are talking about so that really forms the foundation and really there's no systematic way of studying that or putting them in a classification system it's very difficult extremely difficult to do that i know people have been trying but it's very difficult to do that so i see that as the foundational myths and but some of them turned into larger complex cultures and they formed these three major groups i'm not talking about the south american uh, mythologies over there because they we don't have much information about them mm-hmm. we have these grand structures of the mayans and the aztecs and but really they were wiped out so brutally that we don't have much information on them um so i also i put them in the first group the first base group and then there are these three so they draw this concept i do these intersecting circles of three circles and i say that's the the indian mythologies the western mythologies the eastern mythologies and india comes in between and as i said the foundational mythologies of all tribal traditions across the world that can be put in a very big very difficult to classify very, very difficult to organize as a folklorists find it very difficult to organize because it's oral it's highly oral and every little group like you know uh, the kalahari desert there'll be like 5000 stories you'll find in one place it's very difficult to organize that yeah no that makes sense and i think you explained it in a really great way and i guess uh, with the the circles that you were talking about i do remember seeing that where do you see and i know you've said it's hard to classify the different mythologies so maybe this question's redundant but where do you see the key similarities and differences between these three key mythologies where do they sort of overlap those circles versus what separates them or differentiates them so um you know just do a venn diagram just do three yeah. circles and the center of the circle which is common to all human beings first let's look at what is common to all human beings all human beings are looking for something we are all looking for something it could be food at a very fundamental level we are looking for food clothing shelter so we are looking for survival and we are looking for meaning and all human beings are terrified of being denied all these things denied meaning so we are frightened and hungry this is common across the world so all stories when you dig deeper will come from the quest for meaning the fear of invalidation this is common across cultures this will not change right this is common now the indian mythologies unique feature is rebirth they talk about rebirth a lot uh the western mythologies the unique feature is they talk of one life and at the end of this one life there'll be judgment so the greeks believe there is judgment by three judges um, the biblical mythologies as kayamat or judgment day neither of these ideas exist in india right but both these western and indian ideas will talk of liberty but very differently the west will talk of liberty in society indians will talk of liberty from society mm. buddha liberty from society not in society mm. the unique thing about the western mythologies they don't talk much about nature and if they talk of nature they see it as a force of chaos that needs to be controlled when you go towards china nature becomes a very powerful force and nature is seen as a source of harmony and order mm. so you find this chinese mythologies even the art values harmony yin yang mm. uh, balance order so the western stories focus more on the quest for the truth 
Chinese will talk a lot about order and Indian mythologies will talk about peace. So that's how you sort of figure it out. What is common in the West and India is liberty. What is common in India and China is nature. And what is common in the West and China is faith in authority. Indian mythology does not value authority at all. It's a very strange thing, which people don't realize that in India, authority is very functional. So it can be a family authority. That's it. Beyond family authority, nothing matters. The emperor is such an important character in Japanese and Chinese mythology. Great revolutions took place in, look at the Japanese Meiji revolution in the early 20th century. Uh, look at China, the way it has evolved. You have the Mao Zedong, then you have the Deng Xiaoping, now you have Xi, changing the history of the full countries changed by one central authority. Look at Korea, everything is controlled by the center, the central office. In India, that doesn't happen. They are trying to, it doesn't work. Indians just hate authority. The only authority that is acknowledged is the family authority, the patriarch within the family, but mm. not state. State doesn't matter. Family matters much more than state. And when you go to the West, institutions play a very important role. So mm. institution, even not, it is authority, but it is an impersonal authority. No person, not a person. They will not bow to a person. You will mm. bow to an institution. And institutions play a very important role. So you see this difference between these three worlds broadly. I mean, these are all rule of thumb. You shouldn't take them very literally. But broadly, this is how you understand the three spaces. Mm, that's really interesting. And I guess the other layer to that, which you already touched on a little, is, um, of course, a historic one, right? Could you also speak to the role mythology played throughout history versus the role it plays in today's world and how that might differ between the East and the West? See, humans, when you're looking for meaning and you're looking for meaning in life, science won't give you meaning. Science will tell you, okay, this is how you eat and drink and live. And it gives you the how of life. How was life created? How are you born? It doesn't tell you why you were born, why you exist. For that, you need culture. Culture is the only space which gives you an explanation. When you say, I feel proud to be an Australian or an Indian, this doesn't make scientific sense at all. At all. Science will say, what nonsense? This is just a strange pathological need for meaning. Uh, and historically speaking, what has happened is, Mythology is a subject emerged in colonial times. And that's an important thing to remember. The Western scholars, when they saw the world, they saw that they were, people are so different. They think differently. They function differently. They don't believe in one God. And the, the, you know, when you see, encounter something different, the way you react to something different depends on your cultural background. Mm. If you have always believed there is one truth in this world, then a different idea will look like a threat and you will treat it like a threat. Mm. And that is what happened when the Europeans went around the world. They went with the mindset there is only one truth and we know the truth and everything else is false. Now, when you approach the world in that way, they said, oh, these are savages, they're fools, they don't understand anything. And that's the way they approached, unfortunately, the other cultures of the world. They did not approach it with a sense of curiosity. That's saying that, oh, they are different. Mm. Oh, that's an opportunity. If they are different, that means there is something that we can learn. They can learn from us. I can learn from them. We can have a conversation and see what happens. Right? So because I don't see the other person's way of thinking. And that's what happens in the world. So historically, 
Until the colonial period, people really lived in their own geographies, really. They lived in their own worlds. With the colonial period, the ideas people started to spread. And one group of people said that our ideas are right and other ideas are wrong. But unfortunately, at the same time, their own societies were going through dramatic transformations. They were going from a uh, feudal agricultural society to an industrial society. Mm. New ways of, you know, people were challenging aristocracy. They were talking about equality, liberty, brotherhood. So there was a lot of self-reflection going on. So at one level, we are better than you. At another level, hey, but we don't know who we are. And that kind of major changes were happening in Europe in the 19th century. This is when science emerges as a challenge to religion. Mm. In Europe itself, suddenly one God or no God, which is the truth. That's a challenge, internal challenge. External challenge is one God, many gods. So they were very, many gods will not be acceptable. But then at home, they are being challenged by no God ideas. And that's what has happened. Really, we wouldn't have realized these things had... Uh, postmodern philosophy not emerged. Questioning the emotions and the psychological baggage of scientists. Because all scientists came with the psychological baggage. They were from Europe. They were men. They belonged to a particular class of society. They brought their class ideas. They brought their gender ideas. They mm. brought their cultural ideas, their religion into science, into their research. And now people are questioning language and they're deconstructing. Of course, they're going overboard. So th that's the problem with the West. When they get a nice idea, they think it's the idea. They use the definitive pronoun, the truth. Mm. They don't call it a truth. Mm. And it's something we don't realize. The word comes from Semitic traditions. It comes from Arabic. It comes from Hebrew. Old Indo-Aryan languages did not have the definite word, the, T-H-E, which is in French, it's le, la. These words came much later in Latin. They came much, much later as they were introduced to Christian thought. So it comes only in the 15th and 16th century when you read the history of language. In India, there is no word for the, the truth. So they will use the word param satya. Param satya means the whole truth, the comprehensive truth. So all truth is not the same thing as the truth. The truth is qualitative. But in Sanskrit, the word, the equivalent, they use it very casually. All the gurus nowadays, they don't understand language. Unfortunately, we don't, you know, you know, they don't realize the word param means it's like raised to the power of infinity. That's a mathematical concept. It's not the truth. The is a qualitative concept. So Indians would always talk about there are aggregate truths. You aggregate truth to go towards infinite truth. Western thought is replace truths to get the right truth. So do you replace or do you aggregate two meta ways of thinking? These are very high level thinking. But even today, the West thinks in terms of binaries. There has to be a better way. When somebody uses this language, it means he's rejecting many things. And even today, the way we talk about phones, like version one, version two, version three, and the old versions have to be thrown away. Rather than saying, you know, every version satisfies a different economic need. Mm. The Western thought is still universal. They think universally. They just don't think culturally. They, it's Even today, everybody must have everything. It doesn't work. Mm. This is how mythology impacts history. The assumption that there is one truth. It comes mm. from mythology. It's not scientific. Science never told you there's one truth. Science is just a method to figure out things. 
it doesn't have a philosophy this philosophy of one truth comes from judo christianity science said but if you want to do measurement do experiment there's a process don't take anyone's word for it that's the key thing in science don't take a person's word for it that's all it is the science is a very simple technique to understand the world but it's not the, the it has never said we are the only technique science doesn't say that scientists with a christian background say that without mm-hmm. even realizing it they'll say no no i'm an atheist but i'm like then why are you obsessed with one truth can there be an alternate truth there are different ways of thinking different ways of approaching problems and people have survived with those different approaches we may not agree with them but it makes sense to them yeah that's such an interesting way of thinking about it um and i think you know when you were just saying that in india there's no word for the i'm just thinking you know i i can speak tamil and i'm trying to think back to is there a word in tamil for the and i don't you know yeah i don't think there is and it's, it's so yeah. that's what when you translate it in when you translate um, yeah. problem in translate when you start catching these words so you'll suddenly realize hey i can't translate and grammar is a very good place to um figure it's like english uh, um, allows equality because it says you while in in many all across the world there are feudal languages where a lot of hierarchy so mm. you becomes uh, you know in, since you speak tamil vangom and vada mm. right so there are two different ways of calling you come i can say it in a casual way i can be now the fact that you have created two words reveals a world of hierarchy mm. you know so your language is a very powerful like story symbols and rituals language is symbolic it enables you to understand how a particular group of people construct the world yeah it's right or wrong the problem is the moment you explain people say oh my language is better no it's just a language because everything becomes about the ego rather than saying that oh different people see the world differently some people have only one word for you some people have two some people have three and why do they have one two and three and it is because they are dealing with different kinds of challenges that maybe you and i may not understand yeah yeah most definitely and i think to your point of the importance of language it's something that we actually wanted to ask you about as well with colonization what impacts have you i guess studied or found as colonization having on sort of the interpretation and passing on of mythology because obviously you know you look at a lot of mythological texts and a lot of them are written by you know western authors sometimes where the language is sort of lost in translation or missed or there isn't a word that can exactly translate the the sanskrit word or the hindi word into english or another language where have you seen that sort of get lost over time so first let's clarify i don't think colonization is a bad thing or a good thing it's mm. an event so let's be scientific about it it's a historical event something happened a whole series of changes took place you and i can talk to each other one of the reasons is colonization one of the fact that you migrated we are speaking in english the fact that you are in a different part of the world but we are talking about a common heritage then we have technology we are using zoom which is i think chinese so right now at this moment we are beneficiaries of mm. so i am very very again again against the western thing that if it is the past it must be evil this whole thing like we rejected paganism for religion we re- reject religion for marxism you keep rejecting the past and now colonization is the big thing to hit 
everything of the past is evil because tomorrow we will create this perfect world where everything will be wonderful you know this imaginary approach again mythological because you're moving in this journey rida and indian approach is no there was an event and i'll call it the scientific approach that there was an event there were good things and there were bad things what are the good things of colonization they put together dictionaries the earliest dictionaries in many languages are found because of the jesuit missionaries their intention may not have been uh, so good they were not curious about language they were interested in writing the bible in the local language so they came from a very different agenda but the point is language got organized systematized put together so translations took place we can read the vedas today on the phone because somebody decided to translate the vedas these were not accessible to people from lower caste low communities they were locked away so we have access to information at a unprecedented level because of colonization but because of colonization came with a particular mindset of exploitation and superiority it brought in a negative things also it meant languages were distorted stories were put in a different way so even today you know i always say uh, how do you translate the word god uh, there's only one word god but indian in, in in hinduism for example you have deva then you have bhagwan then you have ishwar if i take these three words deva bhagwan and ishwar do they, they are they synonyms are they different ideas because there's only one word god i have in english and is it god with a capital g is it with uh, upper case lower case singular plural masculine feminine and suddenly this one word creates so much of a headache and these are things that even today you try to explain that the word evil has no synonym in indian languages mm. there is no synonym for the word evil what does it mean and then you suddenly see people getting defensive argumentative upset because they never thought of it mm. they never thought of it because we assumed that the colonial way was the right way in the 19th century today we are challenging it so in the 19th century the western way was good then we said no western ways are bad then we went few years ago we thought globalization is the best thing to happen today we are going into nationalism so things change so that's what keeps happening so yes lots of things got changed and distorted in uh, translations you know they tried to see it the way they understood the world mm-hmm. and therefore when you read a book written by someone in the 19th century i don't get upset i say okay let me see what is the 19th century mindset mm-hmm. and let me understand okay in this mindset this is what he came up with but i am not in the 19th century so i'm getting outraged about someone who lived 100 years ago and tearing down down the statues which happens you know in the west because they're feeling self right so you're doing it for your own ego you're not doing it it's not scientific it's not i mean this guy i didn't think like, like that he thought in a very different way we don't agree with him but then you know ramesses is the second build those big monuments you think he built it out of love and affection you know the pyramids were built out of not built out of love and affection somebody was exploited so uh, half the monuments in the world have to be destroyed in that case so colonization is close to us it's right now immediate but this is part of life i mean things unfortunately i wish life was all fair and nice and beautiful it never is people exploit each other we see people as opportunities and therefore exploit them we see people as threats and therefore wipe them out uh, it's happening right now as we speak on the mm-hmm. internet we're seeing what's happening around the world and uh, we are no less noble or ignoble as our ancestors as compared to our ancestors so yeah yeah i mean i swear i could listen to you speak for hours on end i know <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, if you learned as much as we did from DevThought, be sure to tune in to the second half of this discussion next week, where we dive deep into South Asian mythology specifically. Yeah, I'm so excited to drop that episode because like all of DevThought's work, I always learn something new or get a new perspective. Most definitely. And as always, don't forget to share your thoughts with us on Instagram at stuckinbetween underscore podcast and check out our other episodes too. Make sure to rate and leave a review of our podcast on whichever platform you're listening on. Catch you next week. Bye.